Good morning, everybody, and welcome to the highlight of civilization. Wow, it's good to be alive, isn't it? Seems like we're in the middle of all this swirling chaos of badness. But maybe that's just our perception. Maybe things are going great. Let's talk about that. But first, we need to prepare our minds. Uh, If you have something at home that will prepare your mind better than coffee, well, go nuts. But uh, for the rest of us, all you need is a cup or a mug or a glass of tanker, chalice or stein, a canteen jug or flask, a vessel of any kind. Fill it with your favorite liquid. I like coffee. And join me now for the unparalleled pleasure of the dopamine hit of the day. The thing that makes everything better is called the simultaneous sip. It's famous around the world, and maybe a little bit more famous this week. And it happens now. Go. Uh, yeah, that's good. Savor it. Savor it. Well, let's talk about all the things. <clears throat> there are some funny things and some other things. Um, I heard it's International Women's Day. Is that right? Today? Or is it like a month or something? All right. Well, we'll talk about that. So I saw a tweet from John Quakes. He said that uh, as of December 2021, at least according to one source, China is building more nuclear capacity that's already planned than the entire world put together. <laughs> and apparently the USA is like this little, little dot. How in the world can the United States compete in the future with inferior energy sources? I'm not positive that what I'm going to say is 100% true, but I'll bet it is. You know, I, if I had to bet, I'll bet it's true. Has any country ever lost a war when they had the uh, most abundant energy sources in modern times? In modern times, the one with the most energy sources wins everything, right? I think so. And I would think that nuclear would be a big part of of making you a safe country. Here's the thing the United States, maybe everybody, does wrong, but maybe maybe China does it right, actually, because they have more of a comprehensive view of uh, war. You know, I've heard, I'm no China expert, but I've heard you know, that China has the concept of total war, that you know, the economy is war, uh, influence is war, all that stuff is war. But in the United States, because the way we like to lump things and report things, you know, literally the news has somebody who covers uh, the, the uh, military stuff, and then a different person covers the economy. Am I right? The, the way our news is organized is that the economy is separate from military. It just it's easier to talk about it. it. And although it's easier to talk about it, it also gives you a completely misleading idea of what defense is. Military defense is economy. Military defense is energy. Because energy is basically your economy. You know, that's an oversimplification. You could call it hyperbole. I've been known to use it. But uh, nobody would disagree, who knows anything about the world, that that the economy is basically your military. You know, I mean, it's almost a one-to-one correspondence. 
And that energy is pretty much your economy. So energy is your homeland security. You have, I mean, that's the thing that Trump got right, right? Trump was the one who said, you've got to get rid of that pipeline uh, from Russia to Germany because that's a military problem, essentially. He, w- he was the first one I remember framing it correctly. I, I might be wrong. Um, so, and I, was, I was listening to uh, uh, Russell Brand talk about the fact that blowing up the Nord Stream pipeline was more about economics than any kind of you know, military security. To which I said, mm, Russell Brand, you can't separate those things. Now, it, it, his point that there might be a, not might, his point that some people would have a purely financial reason for it, for sure. I mean, that's completely right. Some, some people in the larger drama would have a purely financial interest. Surely those people exist in, in power, too. But as soon as you say that you're doing it for one reason, you've really lost, you've sort of lost the bigger picture. The bigger picture is that uh, taking Europe away from dependence on energy from you know, a, p- a potential adversary uh, was the smartest security thing you can do, even if it's really expensive. In the long run, you've got to get your energy under control and not under your, not under your uh, adversary's control. <laughs> That's just the dumbest thing you could ever do. So I just want to add that frame. I guess that would be called a reframe. So instead of thinking that the military and the economy are two separate questions, they're always the same. And then the third thing is that energy equals economy. They end up basically being a proxy for the other. Well, let's uh, challenge your IQs here. Uh, uh, Let's see if you can get the answer before I ask the question. Go. People on the... There you go. That is the correct answer. Very good. Very good. This is the only audience that can answer a question accurately, accurately, before the question is asked. Am I right? Have you ever seen any audience that can get the answer before the question is asked? And here was the question. Uh, according to Rasmussen, uh, what was the uh, Congress's perform- or approval, um, let's say, in December? They, they have an update. But as of... Oh, you're right, 25%. 25%, that's right. So Congress had a 25% approval in December, but uh, Rasmussen's update is it's up to 28%. 28%, that's, uh, that's roughly that's roughly 25. <laughs> so a quarter of the country uh, thinks that uh, Congress is killing it. Well, I, lo- I love Congress. I like what they're doing now. Do you ever wonder how that conversation goes? You know, the conversations we're most used to are smart people talking to each other because you see them on TV, you see the pundits arguing. But in the real world, the 25% of the public, the voting public, this is voting public, likely voters, <laughs> just, <clears throat> just to make it a little worse, this isn't the general public. This is the elite part of the public that votes. And the, the 25% of them think Congress is, is uh, they're, they're really putting up some good numbers. Do you wonder how that conversation goes? It's like, well, uh, I feel like it goes like this. 
You know, Carl, I've been noticing that Congress has really been killing it lately. Was that so, Eric? Um, You know, like, what would be an example of that? Well, uh, there was that time they approved the budget. Did they approve the budget? I don't know. What other things? A lot of other things they did. They were pretty darn good. Yeah, a lot of other things. A lot of other things. Pretty darn good. I feel like it went like that. Like, like there wasn't a lot of depth of the conversation. See what I'm saying? Not a lot of depth. There were not layers. What I'm saying is there were not layers upon layers of complexity. Probably not. All right, well, that's good. Approval of Congress is up. Um, I am enjoying watching uh, CNN try to give something embarrassing out of the, the uh, personal, uh, not personal, but the, uh, the communications within Fox News about Dominion during the uh, aftermath of the election. And <clears throat> there are lots of emails that you could consider maybe embarrassing. I'm not even sure that's the right word, because they're being sort of presented as embarrassing, but when I read them, I'm having the opposite conclusion. <laughs> like, they're, they're trying to say, look, you know, they, they, knew that, uh, they knew the coverage was wrong, and they, they knew that the election was rigged, but they said otherwise. And then they show the email, and I read it, and it says, I don't see that. I see them, uh, I see them wanting to serve their audience to give their audience the news that the audience is most interested in as citizens of the United States. Is that nothing? Is it nothing that there's an enormous audience that has an intense interest in a specific story? That's not nothing. (laughs) Now, even no matter what your personal feelings were, as long as you were talking about the facts, you know, and opinions around facts, I think it's perfectly appropriate to give the the audience, the news they crave the most. They're the country. The audience is the country. You know, half of it or a third of it or something. So, like, how is that embarrassing? But they, they try to make it. But here's the newest one. Um, apparently, uh, Tucker Carlson was reported in some email to somebody else or something uh, that he, uh, he would be basically glad that uh, Trump was out of the scene because he's sick of reporting on him. And that he, quote, passionately hates Trump. He passionately hates him. Now, keep in mind that the context was immediately uh, right in, the, right in the, the middle of Trump uh, complaining about the election, which sort of put Fox News in a bad situation. Um, now, here's, here's the thing. Is that embarrassing? Is it embarrassing that, uh, you know, maybe the most, you know, a prominent uh, Fox News opinion person. Uh, Let me just finish the reframe here. Here's my reframe. Somehow I didn't know that. I didn't know that. I watched Tucker Carlson during that entire period, and I did not know that he had a bias against Trump, like a personal bias. 
And, he, and I guess Tucker went on to say that he hadn't accomplished much. Now, how is that an insult? How is that embarrassing? In, in what world is it embarrassing that his audience couldn't even tell? And I couldn't tell. I didn't see a bias. I, I thought he reported Trump right down the middle, you know, as his opinion you know, matched up with the facts. I, f- I feel like that was almost a compliment. The fact that the audience couldn't tell that he had a, a very serious bias, like, how, do you, how do you do better than that? Like, what's the level above that? I mean, to me, they just reported he's the pinnacle of objective reporting. <laughs> you know, not objective uh, about his own opinion, because he's an opinion guy, but objective about who was the president of the United States. I, I don't know. Uh, to me, that's, like, worthy of applause. And that's the best the CNN could come up with. All right, um... I'm going to give you, um, oh, and, and here's another one. They're, I think they were trying to embarrass Murdoch or something. Murdoch must have testified. And I guess the lawyer said, quote, uh, you've never believed that Dominion was involved in an effort to delegitimize and destroy votes for Donald Trump, correct? Uh, that was a Dominion lawyer asking Rupert Murdoch. And Murdoch says, uh, quote, I'm open to persuasion, but no, I've never seen it. Okay, that's why he's rich. Is that not the perfect answer? How do you beat that answer? Am I right? <laughs> that is the perfect answer. See, he's, he starts the answer with, you know, probably assuming that this would get out. He starts the answer by respecting his, by respecting his audience. That is respectful of the audience. I'm open to persuasion, but I haven't, but I haven't seen the evidence. You can't beat that. And they're, they're reporting it like it's a, maybe it's a little embarrassing or something. No. If Murdoch were my boss, I'd be pretty darn happy about that. That's a good answer. Especially, so this is a persuasion lesson as well. Saying you're open to persuasion doesn't even say, you know, it's necessarily going to be facts that change people's minds. That's like the, the highest level you can talk about. It's like, we can be persuaded, but I haven't seen anything that persuades me. What a perfect answer that is. That's the way you should answer questions like that. So respect, the, you know, respect who you need to respect. Say you're open-minded. Talk about the evidence. Can't beat it. All right, here's your next uh, persuasion lesson. This one comes to us courtesy of uh, <laughs> uh, Newsom. Governor Gavin Newsom in uh, California. Now, I've talked about this before, but I'm going to add a little, add a little flavor to it. So apparently um, there's a... Uh, it, so as you know, reparations is a big question. And Gavin Newsom told the people interested in reparations to form a little uh, committee and come back with a recommendation. Now, I've told you already that that's a brilliant way for uh, any bureaucracy or any boss to make an idea go away without saying no. You, you just make them go away into a committee. All right, so that's the first persuasion lesson, but I'm going to go deeper. So if the only thing that Gavin Newsom did was tell the reparations people, yeah, I'm open to persuasion, I'm open to persuasion, right? 
just like Rupert Murdoch. I'm open to persuasion. Can you go show me the facts? You know, give me, give me something I can say yes or no to. See? That's good technique. He's respecting his public, saying, you know, go, go form a committee. And they're like, yes, finally we're being taken seriously. Good technique. But here's the brilliant part. It's not just about the fact that it will die in bureaucracy and infighting. It's about the fact that, in the end, they have to put it in writing. They have to put it in writing. Here's your persuasion lesson. If somebody has an idea that just doesn't hang together and couldn't possibly work, and I think reparations is one of those, no matter what you think about you know, the, the morality of it, as a practical matter, we're way beyond the, part, the way that you could you could insert that into current society and get that to, you know, and not cause a revolution or something. I mean, it can't work. So, and you also can't price it. You can't figure out who should get it. You can't figure out who should not get it. So here's what I would do if I were, if I were in charge of this and I wanted to persuade it out of existence. I would respect my audience. And I'd say, all right, you have a moral argument, and it's not, it's not unlike reparations that have been paid for other things in the past. So that would be respecting the audience, right? There are people who care about it. You've got a moral argument. It's not unlike things we've talked about before. Let's talk about it. But then I would go further and say, you need to come up with a number, but because this is so racially charged, I wanna, you need to break it down by, uh, by race not just in terms of who would receive it, but uh, how the tax burden would be distributed. So I'd like to know, for example, if you're recommending... I think they went from recommending $220,000 per black Californian. Uh, They've upped that to $360,000 per black Californian. And, And keep in mind, there was no slavery in California, by the way. But that doesn't mean that people... You know, didn't come from places where there were. Um, here's how I would uh, ask them to do it. I'd say, I want you to come up with a number, and so let's say that's three hundred sixty thousand. Figure out what the how much that is, you know, per year, or what that does to the budget, and then figure out what each ethnic group will be contributing to it. So you'd say, okay, white people, you make a lot of money, so you'd be paying, I don't know, forty percent of it, sixty percent. It'd be like uh, Hispanic Americans, you know, this would be your share. And then Asian Americans, here's how much you're going to pay uh, for black reparations. And then you publish it. And you say, here's the recommendation from our reparations group. And then you let the public do the rest. All you have to do is ask somebody to write it down. Just write it down. And if they don't write down, you know, of course they would leave out anything embarrassing to their case. You just say, all right, you know, you've got to do both the pros and the cons. I, I don't want to put the cons on top of your idea. You're the experts. So give us both the pros and the cons. Tell us who benefits, what it costs, who's, who's paying. And just really map out some details here. So, you know, it might come out that the average uh, Hispanic immigrant who came across the border on Tuesday would you know, maybe be on the hook for some of those reparations, too. 
And then you'd have to you'd have to deal specifically with what about people who um, live here but are not residents? What about that? What if somebody's not a resident of California but they do live here? You know, they might not have changed the residency yet. Do they get paid? Because if they do, then what about people who move here just temporarily to get some reparations? Do they get some reparations? How about that? So you simply ask the people to describe their plan in a little more detail, make sure that they've got the pros and the cons, so there's an argument both. But here's the argument you would be sure to ask them to include, and I saw this today, um, equal opportunity activist Ward Carnley. So he was asked on the California board, and he got up and he spoke and he said that uh, there's only one way uh, to stop all the, the crime, and that's to... Uh, here's a, he said, there's only one thing that would stop our children from busting into these liquor stores. There's only one thing that would stop our kids from busting into these jewelry stores, stealing watches and jewelry, and that's reparations. So I would say, make sure you include that argument, like right up in the summary. You want to put that right up top? Um, and not only that, but um, I would highlight this. And uh, have you ever heard me say, embrace and amplify? I would embrace this, and I would amplify it. Um, because there might be a lot of other places we could use this concept of paying large amounts of money to criminals so that they will be uh, disincented from, um, from a crime. What, what's that? There's a word for that. So there's a word for that. What, what's the word for when you pay somebody money not to do something bad to you? What's, what's it? Oh, extortion. Extortion. Right. So the plan here is to uh, sort of morph from the crimes which none of us want. I mean, none of us want anybody breaking into jewelry stores and liquor stores and stuff. We'd like that then. But if we could just convert that into more of an extortion kind of a model, that might be something that we could use in other ways. For example, uh, we keep talking about using the military in Mexico, but that was before I heard this idea. We probably could just pay the cartels not to do crimes. Now, it would be more expensive, but so is war. So is war. So why don't we use the Ward Carnley idea of paying reparations to black Californians as a way to stop the, uh, the attacks on stores? Because once they had some money, they would have no reason to do it. So sort of one plus one equals two. Basic logic. But you could just extend that to all crime, really. Why, why would we stop it there? One of the things I like is if you try something small and it works, hey, let's pay criminals extortion so they don't, they don't uh, rob us. And we should just get rid of prisons. There is some amount of money. If we save all that prison money, we'll just give all of our money to the criminals, and then they're going to let us go. And I think that would be one way to defund police, is just pay the criminals directly until they... Uh, have no reason to rob a liquor store. Now, they still might rob a liquor store because it's easier than taking out your wallet, and apparently there's no penalty for it. So it might, you know, the convenience factor still has to be factored in because it might be just more convenient to pick up the liquor and just walk directly out the door, especially if there's, like, 
one or two people in line, don't you hate that? Like you want to pay for something, you plan to pay for it, but there's two people in line, and you're like, eh, what time is it? I, I want to get and drink my liquor. So just cut the line, walk out the door. Uh, we don't have law in California. So that would be a good idea. But anyway, the point is that all of that should be in the reparations recommendation because you don't, wanna, you don't want people to think you didn't think it through. You know, people need to think you thought it through. So that's your persuasion tip for today. Uh, also, um, there's a big unreported thing. If you, I'm a little bit disgusted with all of the uh, videos that we see that are sort of lopsided, you know, race-wise. You know, especially in Fox News and on the right right side of uh, social media, you see a lot of videos of. It seems like they're they're focusing only on the few videos of black people hitting non-black people, right? White or Asian American or stuff like that. And if you if you think about all the videos that they're suppressing, it really makes you wonder about these algorithms. For example, I've never seen. Uh, a video of an Orthodox Jew beating up uh, a black person. You know they exist, but it's probably an algorithm thing. So uh, the other thing is, when you watch, when I watch those vi- videos, I always have the same feeling. Do you? And I know it's we get so biased because it's only one type we're seeing. It's just one type we're seeing. One type. One type. And there's no way that doesn't affect your brain and make you more biased. And when I watch them, I just think the same thing every time. Whoever talks about all the hand injuries to the attackers? Every time I see one of them, I see people using their bare hands and punching people into these hard skulls. And they're usually hitting like the hardest part of the body. They're not even hitting soft parts. Like the soft parts are usually using their boots. But with the, they're hitting barehanded. There's a reason the boxers wear those big gloves. Did you know that? That's like to protect their hands. And they're professionals. Professional boxers are protecting their hands with these big things. So if you're an amateur and you just you know, sort of spontaneously get into one of these fights, there have to be a lot of hand injuries, and nobody's talking about that. Nobody's talking about that. So I thought we should talk about that. All right, Vivek, uh, here's some uh, Vivek Ramaswamy persuasion about January 6th. So he's using a, uh, an analogy here. He says, if you're prosecuted for an alleged bank robbery, you get to see all the video footage of what happened, not just the time your face is caught in camera at the site. That's basic constitutional law and criminal procedure. No one should ever be convicted of a crime without seeing all potential exculpatory uh, evidence. This is not a right-wing or a left-wing issue. Justice demands it. High ground, high ground maneuver. That's the high ground maneuver. Yeah. So I, I love the fact that he changes the frame to uh, really a constitutional thing that every person would agree with, basically. That literally nobody would disagree, right? The, the thing that makes it a high ground maneuver is that there is no argument against it. Did you notice that? See, there, there are tons of uh, professional politicians who will make an argument when there's an argument against it. Now, sometimes you can't avoid that, right? But if you have a choice, 
and you can make your argument in a way that nobody can argue, well, that's the best you can do. <laughs> you can't beat that, like, by definition. You can't beat something that ever, just shuts everybody down. Who exactly is going to argue that the, the accused should not have access to the evidence? Most basic thing in America, right? Can't get more basic than that. So yeah, that's, so that's what Ramaswamy brings to the game, and I think he's going to make all of the Republicans better. Because he, once again, once again, this is like how many times have we seen it, he set the standard for how to talk about it. And I think that Republicans have done a poor job in the past in finding frames that are the high ground. They, they go to the, uh, the partisan stuff. Now, the partisan stuff is how you win stuff in the past, but nobody's ever tried to use a high ground where everybody could be happy. Politicians typically don't know how to do it. It's actually a rare skill. So if you think this is an accident, this isn't an accident. Ramaswamy actually knows how to do this. Right? You know who else was good at it? For a while. Obama was good at it for a while. Yeah, he got a little more partisan, but... Uh, for a while he was good at it. All right, so Tucker talked to a security guard who was working the, on the January 6th day, and... Everything about January 6th is disgusting. Am I right? Like, everything about it is not just wrong or inaccurate, not just fake news, not partisan. It's disgusting. It's just disgusting. And I'd have to say, that should be the one thing we could agree on, right, left and right, that everything about this is just disgusting. Uh, How happy am I that uh, violent people... There were some violent people, right? We don't know the percentage. But how happy am I that people that I would identify, I would have identified as roughly on my team at the time, and they, they go and like ruin, ruin things for all of us? I'm disgusted by that, the violence. Disgusted, right? Violence is bad enough. All, all violence is terrible. But this is violent and disgusting. Right? The way the news treated it, is disgusting. The way Congress, you know, did their special hearing, and, you know, at least some part of it was total bullshit, is disgusting. They were sending Americans to jail, knowing that they were apparently, if you, if you were to take the current reporting at face value, it does look like there's a good argument for evidence was uh, withheld. I mean, I guess that's a fact, right? I think we could say it's a fact that the defendants did not have access to this video. So that's just a fact, right? We, that's not an opinion. So that's, that's the end of the story. That should be the end of the story, right? Why in the world is anybody keeping these people in jail? At this point, whether or not they committed a crime can't be the, the question. That We cannot reframe this as did they commit a crime. The, and again, I'm only talking about the nonviolent ones. Everybody understands that, right? A hundred percent of us, I think, oppose the, the violence, whether you're left or right, you know, close to a hundred percent of us. Um, but, you know, the, the left wants to make it, whatever the violence is, characterize the entire thing, which is totally disgusting. Just, that's disgusting. But, 
it might be no more disgusting than you know the right characterized Black Lives Matter. What, so here's the question for you, the question of the day. What percentage of a crowd of protesters would have to be uh, violent and or destroying property, let's say, before you would say it's a violent uh, protest? What percent of actual participants in violent? Because it doesn't need to be that big. You know, and I think this is where the bias comes in. I think if you're on the right and you see Black Lives Matter and 1% of them are violent, it's going to feel like 30% because that's what was on the news. And you're going to say, that's too much. But you wouldn't know what percentage it was. I have no idea. If you said, Scott, gun to your head, you must, you must uh, come up with an estimate of what percentage of the Black Lives Matter rioters were actually destroying things or violent. And I'd have to say, first of all, I have no idea. Do you? Like, I, I couldn't even guess. If you put the gun to my head, I'd say 1%. Gun to head, 1%. And that's, a, that's maybe something in that, in that neighborhood if we round. If you round, it's probably around 1% for these protesters as well. What would you say? Some are saying up as high as 25% for um, Black Lives Matter. If 25% of those crowds were violent and destroying things, the rate of destruction would be way beyond what we've seen, I think. But that, that's without data. That's just sort of living in the world. It has that feeling about it. You know what I mean? Sort of, sort of my collective experience of the world says that if 25% of those crowds were destroying things, there would be no cities left. I think it's 1%, but I don't know. So before you decide that uh, Black Lives Matter was or was not violent in their protests or the January Sixers were or were not violent, you're going to have to figure out what percentage you would say makes them violent. And then also it would be fair if you treated both sides roughly the same. That would be fair. In your thinking, it would be fair. So I'd love to know that. Anyway. Um, so Tucker talks to the security guard, and uh, it's important to the story that you know he was a black guy. He's a Biden voter, Biden voter. And the way he was treated is disgusting. Now, we may, we may be missing some facts, but the facts that are reported based on his, his story is that he was there that day. He was a Capitol Police guy. Um, he says they were not informed that the protest was going to be as big as it was, so he thought that his management failed him for reasons he doesn't know. And what happened was, he says, that as he was uh, walking through the crowd, somebody put a MAGA hat on his head. And he quickly realized that that was the safest thing he could do to walk through the crowd. (laughs) He must have still had his uniform on, but once he had the MAGA hat on, and and he's black, right, So if you see a black guy in a Capitol uniform with a MAGA hat in the middle of the protest, I'm guessing that makes you completely safe. Would you agree? Like, that hat would be like a force field. So he puts on this hat in the middle middle of this dangerous chaos, right, very unpredictable, dangerous chaos, and violence was happening. He puts on the hat to keep himself safe, Clearly not a supporter. Clearly not a supporter. 
Just, just thinking fast and being smart. I mean, how, how would you... Dis- I can't describe that any way other than smart. That's, that's the only description, right? He got fired for it. He got fired. Because <laughs> there's a picture taken of him in the hat. Um, and, and then he wasn't interviewed by the January 6th people. I think... Oh, I'm sorry. Yeah, I'm, uh, I'm getting the story a little bit wrong. Somebody's correcting me here. He was put on some kind of leave indefinitely, and then he quit during the leave, which lost his pension or something like that. Suspended. Suspended, put on leave, something like that. Yeah. So ba- basically, he, w- he got a penalty for doing a smart thing. And I don't know if there's a counter-argument. I just feel like everybody turned into a turd at the same day. Like the press, you know, all, everybody talking about it practically, we all, we all turned bad one way or another. But it's like everything was bad from top to bottom. Like it was this moment of, you know, just extraordinary, disgusting ugliness that swept over everybody for a little while. It was like a, like a mass hysteria that took too many people in. I mean, I'd just like to forget the whole thing. Yeah, I guess we can't forget it. We have to figure out what happened. But uh, the faster we get past that, the better. All right. Um, got it. Uh, of, all, of all the many terrible things, this one bothered me the most because he got punished for doing something smart. Like, that just that hurts my head so hard. As the creator of the Dilbert comic, right? Like, that, that's right in my feels. I hate that. All right, and then I guess there's video now, Tucker has, that the, uh, the narrative about Brian Sicknick by some people, and I don't know who had it right and who had it wrong in the media, uh, was wrong. I feel as if the media was a little more accurate that he was not killed by the protesters. But I feel that the politicians kept conflating his death as if the protesters did it. Does that feel right to you? New York Times sells the fake story. Um, so on Twitter, there was a community notes put up on a tweet that said the Washington Post, and I think somebody else, Reuters maybe, reported it correctly, which would mean some of the media got it right. But I haven't confirmed that. So my, my best guess is that the media, some got it right, some got it wrong, and as long as some of the media got it wrong that gave the politicians cover to intentionally get it wrong. I think that's what happened. Now, what do you think of that? Now, I don't mind so much that the media got a story wrong. Is you, know, you have to live in a world where stories are wrong sometimes. <laughs> Case in point. Um, but, I don't know, this is just, this is just hideous. Hideous uh, behavior by Congress. Uh, they should be in jail. The, the January 6th people who perpetrated this hoax. And I'm going to call it a hoax because they left out, they did, did not provide the uh, exculpatory or potentially exculpatory. I think with the QAnon shaman, the video is highly exculpatory. Highly. I don't know how much it is for the other people, but at least a little bit probably. So yeah, this is just disgusting. All right, so I'm revising my opinion about the, uh, the cartel violence on a car of four Americans who went into Mexico 
Some cartel shot him up, killed two, tragically. Um, my first thing was that they knew they were Americans. So when in the initial reporting, I felt like they knew they were Americans and they took them hostage. That didn't happen. It, it looks like they were mistaken for a Haitian gang. It looks like they were black, so they mistaken them, mistook them. There might, they might have avoided maybe avoided a checkpoint after they went through or something. So there's something that didn't look right, and the cartel guards who... Apparently there's two checkpoints. You get across the border legally, and then as soon as you're over, the cartel checks you a second time. Did you know that? <laughs> Did you know that the cartel has its own, its own guard post at the border? Yeah. If you didn't know that. Um, so... This is the sort of thing that might spark a war, but my take was if they would brazenly kidnap Americans, you just have to turn up the heat to 100. And not 100, but you've you got to turn it up to laser quality. Uh, but it, apparently they did not. However, there do seem to be lots of actual other American kidnapping cases. They're probably cartel cases, too. So... I wouldn't make my case for uh, attacking Mexico based on uh, this event, as tragic as it was, but um, it does make everybody's brains think, you know, in a more aggressive fashion, I think. So Lindsey Graham's getting serious about this now. Uh, Cartels, or the Congress seems to be changing. But I was watching The Five yesterday, and they had a graphic about how many cities in the U.S. the cartels have already set up shop. Uh, don't ever look at that graphic if you have a choice. Uh, it will mess up your brain. I don't know the real size of the problem because it could be, you know, five people in a city count as MS-13 or something. I don't, I don't know what it takes to count as having a foothold. But it's a lot of cities. It looked like 100 cities. It's taken, like, the, the bottom two-thirds of the country, basically. And, yeah, I, but I don't know if they're influencing the police departments yet. Presumably, if they grow, they would. I, you know, there's some rumor that they're taking over from other gangs. I don't know the extent of that. Uh, but it's, I, I, think, I think the country's getting pretty serious about uh, doing something about it for a change. Uh, however, I do take counsel from Geraldo Rivera, who's, you know, anti... Sounds like he's anti-using military in Mexico. And here's the argument against it. Wars never work and they never end. (laughs) So that would be the argument against it. It's just another way for the military-industrial complex to make money. It'll never end and it'll never work. Now, that's not terrible. That's not a terrible opinion. I actually found myself persuaded because there's such a long history of wars not working, for America anyway. And uh, so I think you have to take that seriously. However, as Greg Gottfeld pointed out on the same show, uh, they're killing 100,000 a year now. How much worse could it be? Would it be worse? I don't know. It might be worse in a different way, because you'd expect some pushback. But I don't know. My, my uh, instinct is that if you do nothing, the 100,000 gets bigger. And it's already, you know, completely 
yeah, and, of, and of any reasonable range of tolerance. I mean, it's so far away from anything you would tolerate. But let's consider the alternative. Full legalization. Would that just make the cartels own a legal business? And that's the only change? They would, they would just figure a way to make it legal and then they'd still be in business? Or would it only work if the government provided the drugs for free? Or at the same price, let's say. Could you drive the cartels out of business by taking away their source? The trouble is we only have ideas that can't work. So here are the, here are the three ideas that can't work. Do nothing. That can't work. Uh, go to war. It might work, but you know the odds are not as good as you'd like. Uh, or legalize it, which would probably in the short run cause way more deaths, but it would put the cartels out of business after we've addicted more people. I don't know. You know th- does the supply and demand actually cause more people to be addicted if it's um, easier and safer to get? Or is it just that the people who want to be addicted already have access and it wouldn't make any difference at all? So it feels like every path doesn't work. Doesn't it? It just feels like all of them don't work. But doing nothing seems like the dumbest. You know, if, if the war makes it worse, I suppose we can stop doing it, but we never do. So, I don't know. I'd be tempted to annex Mexico. I mean, I suppose you could try uh, getting permission to use special forces and stuff, but I don't know. Would that make any difference? We'll see. I think uh, military is inevitable at this point. Here's what the world needs. The world needs what I call a Zoom government, or government in a box, for situations in which a government would be temporarily without a government usually because of a war or revolution or something. So wouldn't it be good, and I'll just use the Swiss as my universal neutral country. Imagine you had a Swiss entity that was like organized as already a government. And they would go in and they would act as a government for a six-month period for any country that temporarily didn't have one. They would be, let's say, under UN supervision, something like that, you know, just so there's a little bit of credibility. But the deal is they have to leave in six months. They have to. There's just no option. They've got to leave in six months, even if they haven't fixed anything. right? Even if they haven't fixed anything. Because if you can't get something going in six months, eh, probably you never will. Right? So I think we need something like that. I saw a bunch of people yelling, no, what, what's the... What's the argument against it? Well, you could make it an international group. Just, just people who are just a safe, competent, maybe they're older. It would be good if they're older so they don't want to stay there forever. They just take over for a while, keep the, keep the lights on, and then you phase them out uh, willingly. If they're, will, if they're well paid, it would be uh, not too big of a risk that they would try to stay. And I don't think, I don't think that a foreign power could control the military very easily, right? So I wouldn't worry about the government in a box coming in and then taking over the country because they wouldn't have the loyalty of the military. 
the military, at best, would say, all right, we got a problem here. See if you can work it out in the next six months and then turn it back over to us. Economic collapse. Well, it would be better than no government at all. Um, let's check in on the Biden competency for handling this uh, Mexico, uh, Mexico fentanyl problem and MS-13. Uh, to check competency, we'll check in with uh, Jean-Pierre, uh, see what she said, spokesperson. She said that uh, fentanyl is currently at uh, historic lows, uh, historic levels under the Biden presidency. All right. So the Biden administration, according to the spokesperson, uh, can't tell the difference between how much they catch and how much is getting in. They actually can't tell the difference between measuring how much you catch and knowing how much actually got in that you didn't catch, as if they can't tell the difference. And that, that's who's in charge of the... Right. Now, if you say to me, Scott, Scott, that's the spokesperson, that's just the spokesperson. She, she sometimes has a gaffe. She's been saying this for a long time. <laughs> it wasn't just yesterday. Am I, am I right? She's been saying the same thing for a long time. They, they act as though they're not just lying, that they can't tell the difference, that they actually can't tell the difference. Like, actually. That's what it looks like. I mean, you could say, yeah, it's just spin, but it doesn't look like it. It looks like they can't tell the difference. All right. Don't know. I don't want to read her mind. Maybe she can't tell the difference. That would be even worse. Has anybody seen this new beauty filter on TikTok? where all you do is turn on the filter, and in real time, you look like a beautiful version of yourself. It's, it's scary. Oh, and there's a, a pedo one where a man could be a beautiful woman and stuff like that, right? So basically, you can turn into anything, and you can't tell anymore. What's different about it is you can't tell. You actually can't tell. And there's, like, good news and bad news. The good news is um, I'm going to look a lot younger in about a year <laughs> because it seems to me that Zoom and you know, these, uh, all of these services, at the very least, they would have a makeup option. Am I right? So there's somebody like me who doesn't want to put makeup on to do a live stream. I would just hit a button, and it would you know, just give me a look as if I had TV makeup on. And you wouldn't be able to tell the difference. It would... There wouldn't be any you know, pixels floating or anything. It would just look exactly like me, but better. And I, um, and I could make myself younger. I could remove wrinkles. Anything I want, apparently. So what's that going to do to podcasting when you're looking at somebody who's a perfect reproduction but the better version? I guess you could argue that's what movies and TV have always been, right? Now, if you see the real movie star, they don't quite look like... They look in the movies. Although I, uh, I heard one exception. I heard one exception to that. So when Angelina Jolie was in her, her uh, let's say, movie-making prime, I don't want to say her prime. I'll say her movie career prime. Did you see how cleverly I danced around that? Don Lemon. Take a lesson, Don Lemon. Um, so when she was in her movie-making prime, uh, I... I was photographed by somebody who had just photographed her not too long ago. 
So, and I asked him about that. Apparently she, I think she showed up alone, like at sort of the height of her fame. She showed up to a photo shoot alone, didn't need anybody. And he said that she was the most, like, stunning person in person he'd ever seen. <laughs> so apparently her, her movie charisma perfectly translated into a one-on-one private situation. He, like, he couldn't say, he couldn't stop talking about what it was like to be in the same room. Like, and he was, he was a celebrity photographer, so he'd done, he'd done all the actresses and models and stuff. But she was the one he said, yeah, that it's the same in the room. <laughs> that was interesting. All right. Um, here's a uh, thing that I just figured out today. And maybe some of you already knew this. Forever I've been asking you, what's the deal with everybody hating Soros? Right? And everybody gets mad at me. But people wouldn't explain why. Now, of course, there's the vague you know, Jewish thing. So I think, oh, it's anti-Semitic, right? It's just an anti-Semitic trope. But I couldn't get any more knowledge or information about where it comes from, why him specifically, you know, what's this business? And I finally, I finally tra- we went down the conspiracy theory rabbit hole to figure out what's going on. How many of you knew the following thing? That when... Uh, not everybody, right? Most of my generalizations are not everybody. But when people on the right, not all the people on the right, some of the people on the right, when they talk about Marxism, they're really um, talking about Jewish people trying to take over the world. Do I have that right? But nobody's willing to say that out loud. That's the conspiracy theory, right? That from, from some document I'm not going to name, from like 1920, there was a fake document that said that Marxism was really a cover for the, you know, some kind of Jewish takeover of the world. Now, is that why you're trying to not tell me because you don't want to say that out loud? By the way, there's no evidence of that that would be crazy. Now, let me tell you, if there's anybody on here, right, some, there are a few yeses. Most of you are saying no, but there are some yeses. All right, so just look at the other comments. There are some yeses. And that means that some people were aware of this. And I, I, just, I just heard this, this theory yesterday, actually. Uh, and finally pieced it together. So I was always confused why people would use the word Marxist. Do you know why? Because I don't think it's a persuasive word. And I kept wondering, why does everybody say... You know, she's a Marxist, Marxist, they're a Marxist, BLM is a Marxist. I never understood it. Because if you're calling somebody a Marxist, when I hear that, I go, oh, it's a different economic theory? Whoa. Like, why, why are you using that word? Right. Um, so I just wondered how much of a, like, anti-Semitic variable is built into that when people use that word. Because I, I don't think I'd ever use that word. I'm not... There's something going on. All right. So here's my take on conspiracy theories. Here's how to tell what is not a conspiracy theory. When too many people are allegedly involved. That's never a conspiracy theory. Never. Never. This is never a conspiracy theory. So this whole worldwide, you know, Marxists are really 
It's really a Jewish plan to take over the world. It imagines that there's like plotters everywhere and you know, nobody's talking about it, but they're all connected. That's never a thing. That is never a thing. <laughs> I guarantee you that's not a thing. But if you told me that 50 uh, Intel people who knew each other signed a document and conspired to lie about Hunter's laptop, I'd say 50's a lot. But if they were all Intel people who knew each other, I could see that. Right? So that's not too many people, given that they're Intel people who know each other. But as soon as you say worldwide, <laughs> like that, there's nothing like that. Yeah, nobody can nobody can maintain a worldwide, you know, hundred year plan. Now that doesn't mean that there's nobody who ever said it, you know, hundred years ago. It doesn't mean there there aren't people who, you know, actually have that belief. But there's somebody who has every belief. So I feel like the whole uh, we don't like Marxism thing. Even if it's the exact correct word, it's not persuasive. And it has this tinge of the anti-Semitism on it that doesn't seem persuasive. Like, why would you use a word that's, that's already slimed by uh, anti-Semitism? You wouldn't, you wouldn't want to use that word. It's not persuasive. So I don't know what the alternative is, because Marxism covers like a, a description of a larger thing, but not Marxism. Uh, let, let me uh, let me um, speculate a few things. If you changed it to systems over goals, it gets closer. Like marriage, having a traditional family is a system, isn't it? Whereas uh, Marxism might have a goal of everybody being treated equally. Um, free markets are a system. Whereas Marxism, uh, you know, of course, both have systems, but Marxism is goal-oriented, like to get to a place where, I don't know, the government controls everybody, if you have that point of view, or get to a place where everybody's equal, or something like that. So instead of Marxism versus, I don't know, free markets or capitalism, I would go with something like systems that work and systems that don't. And the ones that don't are, are always the same reason. The systems that don't are either focused backwards, you know, my big point of the week, they're either backwards looking at victimization, or they don't take into account um, um, uh, incentives. So, you know, you could almost uh, say uh, systems with incentives versus systems without. You could say people who have systems that are well-designed versus systems that are designed to fail. Maybe that's the way to go. We favor systems that are designed to work and have always worked. They're based on human incentives and everybody getting fair access. Fair access. That's a system that works. A system that doesn't work is removing incentives. You know, maybe there's another way to say that. But here, here's my big persuasion thing. As long as Republicans and conservatives are using the word Marxist, they are, on a scale of 1 to 10, their persuasion is a 1. That, that's my opinion. A scale of 1 to 10, saying Marxists, they're all Marxists. On a 1 to 10, that's just a 1. It's, not, it's probably hurting you more than it's helping you. 
It's so bad. But there, there have to be better ways to do that. Uh, there's a story about Musk mocking a disabled employee. Do you believe that happened? Do you believe that headline? Musk mocked a disabled employee. Is your first instinct that that's exactly right and there's no context that needs to be added? <laughs> would, it, would it change your mind if you knew that Musk had no idea that the person was uh, disabled, nor did anybody else because they had the conversation in public on Twitter? He found out later. And when he found out later, and he also made some other assumptions about the guy, uh, he apologized in public. And people were saying, how dare you be so insulting to the disabled guy? My God. Here's, here's my standard for behavior. Do I judge people from, by making mistakes? Nope. <laughs> I never have, because everybody makes mistakes. That's a ridiculous standard. This is a reframe as well. Judging people by the mistakes, and this is in the book that just got unpublished, uh, making mistakes is what everybody does. I try as hard as possible not to judge people by the mistakes, but rather to judge them by how they handle their mistake, because that, that's more thought is put into it and more, more character is you know, exhibited. So Musk... Uh, learned what the real facts were and apologized in a completely adequate way, in my opinion. Um, That's as good as it gets. Again, he's being criticized for behavior that I don't, you know, nobody, nobody, uh, let's say, nobody condones a mistake. It's just, it's kind of dickish to condemn it. Like, it's it's not so out of range of things that we've all done and, and thought, oh, I better go fix that. Right? It's not like he ate a baby or something. But it was pretty funny. I like that he defaults to the funniest approach to everything. <laughs> Don't you? I feel like part of uh, Elon Musk's uh, operating system is that uh, if there are two things you can do, and they look you know, sort of equally you know, risky in terms of risk-reward, that he'll always take the funny one. And I think he said something that suggests maybe that's actually in his mind. All right. I saw a good theory today that uh, some, some person who had inside knowledge about Putin, that Putin has a young mistress who's basic, basically like a wife and has kids or kid, I think kids, and so he has a young family, and he has you know, great mansions and everything he wants. And so the argument is he's not crazy, so the odds of him not launching a nuclear war, which would kill his young family, that, you know, I saw pictures of him looking at the, the woman who was uh, apparently confirmed as his mistress. He looks in love. Like, the way he's looking in the pictures is that look like, I'm not going to lose this. And, and she's not like... Uh, I mean, she, ju- she just looks like somebody who had a genuine connection with him, just based on a few photographs. So that's a pretty good argument, and that was the argument that I made without, without the details, that it wouldn't be rational for him to start a nuclear war. It would never be good for him, personally. All right, the problem with statistics. Do you know why, the, why statistics is even a thing that people have to learn, depending on their career? Why, why was statistics even invented? Well, let me answer that question for you. 
It's because our common sense fools us routinely. Common sense is so opposite of what statistical truth is that we end up getting in... You, you saw it in the last week without getting into details again. There was a bunch of argument about whether a poll was accurate or not. The people who criticized the poll said, oh, it's such a small sample, therefore it cannot tell us anything. And then I would say, well, it only has an 8% margin of error, even at that small number, assuming that the sample was corrected, you know, uh, was collected um, appropriately. And I would just get, like, stunned silence because 8% wouldn't have changed any conclusion from it. So it's non, that's not obvious. And what people would say is, how could 130 people represent 100 million people? And I would, I would sort of have to just hold my tongue because I wanted to answer sarcastically. How can, how can a small sample represent a large population? That's called statistics and polling, and that's exactly the description of it. And the, yeah, and then the confidence interval tells you how confident you should be based on how small your size is. So really, really basic stuff people don't know about statistics. But this brings me to Charles Barkley uh, disagreeing with um, a, let's see, a ESPN commentator named uh, Kendrick Perkins. And Kendrick Perkins suggested that there was racial bias in the MVP votes because since 1990, uh, the only people who won MVP without being in the top 10 of scoring... Now, that sounds a little suspicious on its surface, doesn't it? That somebody could be the MVP of the entire league ever and not be in the top 10 of scoring. Doesn't that sound suspicious to you? And the only time it's ever happened is with three white players. <laughs> but, no, but honestly, you don't think the scoring would be sort of five to one of importance compared to all of the other things? Because remember, it's fans voting, right? Or no, is it fans voting or is it the professionals voting? Who votes for the MVP? The oh, fans and, and the press who covers it? So sports writers, no fans. I'm getting mixed messages here. Uh, sports writers. So we think it's sports writers who do it. Okay. So when it seems suspicious to you that uh, three, the only three times that it wasn't, they weren't in the top ten of scoring, they were all white guys. And there's another one. Um, there's another one that's up for it, I guess, or got won it. And then uh, Barkley says, uh, you can't tell me because the numbers don't make sense. Does he know how many vote? Does he know how many voters are white actually, or did he pull 80 percent out of his ass? So I guess uh, Kendrick must have said 80 percent of the voters on that are white. Uh, my point is, if only five white guys have won MVP in the last 30 years, that makes zero sense. His argument, zero sense, because if that were if that was the case we'd have a lot more white MVPs. Wouldn't the numbers be way, way worse? So Barclay's sort of statistical you know, instinct is that if, if 80% of the voters were white uh, and racial bias is in it, that, um, that we'd see like mostly white winners. Does that make sense to you? 
that make sense to you? Neither of these arguments make any damn sense. Neither side makes any sense, right? Because neither of them have any data. (laughs) Neither of them have any data. And if they did, would the data tell you anything? Probably not. Let me tell you why the data wouldn't tell you anything. Um, and I'm going to surprise you. I'm going to surpri- I'm going to side with uh, Kendrick Perkins. <laughs> I'm not going to side with Barclay. <clears throat> I like what Barclay's doing. I think what Barclay's doing is trying to just take race out of the uh, out of it, which I love. Which is why Charles Barclay is like way on the top of my list of people I would want to vote for if he ran for politics. Like, he would be way at the top of my list. I just love that he's lived a life where he can sort of laugh about racial stuff, but you never think he takes it seriously. That's, like, such a good, like, place to start. So I like his instinct to try to take the energy out of it and stuff like that. But here's what I think. If you were the... uh, Let's say most of them were white. Nobody knows if it's 80%. But if, if most of the writers who were, were voting every year, do you think that white people would have the following thought? And I'm going to speak as a one white person who would think the following way, but I'm not going to say that they do. All right, so I'm not going to say that somehow I uh, that somehow uh, represent white people. Here's what I would have done if I were in that group. I'd say to myself, what's good for, what's good for the game? And then I would have voted appropriately. If I were a sports writer, especially white, but maybe also black, I'm not sure why it would especially be different. But if I were voting, I would vote for what's good for the game. And sometimes what's good for the game is that a few white people win sometimes. (laughs) Because maybe if you only did the top scorers, it would be nothing but black winners. And you have uh, probably way more white audience. And to me, it seems like the writers were somewhat subconsciously, subconsciously, balancing it out so that it would would sort of look like um, something closer to balanced. And it might be that, you know, maybe it's been since Larry Bird that, like, a white guy should have (laughs) won. I don't know if that's true. But I would have to say it does look a little suspicious to me that the, the white guys are the ones who win without being in the top ten of scoring. That's not a bad point, is it? Is that a bad point? But I don't think it's exactly the way he's describing it. I think, I think you could allow for two types of racism. One type of racism is the bad kind, where people are just voting based on race. The other kind is also incorporating race, but more trying to find a balance of just what's good for the game. It'd be good if some white people won once in a while, because there are a lot of white fans. You know, it's, it's the sort, same sort of uh, thinking if, if the situation were reversed. Now, that's how, probably how I would vote, I have to admit. I probably would vote based on if I thought there was some unfairness or inequity, I might vote in a way that would fix it. I can imagine that. I don't know if I would just be like, oh, who had the best stats? Because it's not really even about the best stats, is it? Because beyond the stats, some, some players consistently make their team win when they're on the field. That's actually the best stat. 
The best stat is how they score when that one person is playing. That's, that's the one I like the best. All right. So I guess we don't know. I guess my only point is that without data and without uh, being statisticians, and none of us in the story are statisticians, that I don't think Kendrick Perkins' idea is crazy. I would just say it might be more of a good purpose to it, or at least good intention, than bad intention. But probably there's a racial component to that. Uh, woke agenda might be banned in Iowa. So the House of Representatives is looking at something to ban uh, the DEI bureaucracies in our institutions of higher education. Do you think that'll pass? Iowa's solidly Republican, are they? No, they're not. Is, is Iowa uh, in their legislature? They're, they're not, right? Yeah. So does it have a chance? Wouldn't you need a solid Republican legislature to have a chance with something like that? So I don't know what the odds are. I guess I guess I should have brought it up. <laughs> uh, so here's the just latest update on me, um, but I'm not going to go into any detail on this now. So the Chris Cuomo interview I did about my um, my so-called racist rant, TM trademark. Should I try to get a trademark on racist rant? No, probably too soon. Uh, but nearly half a million people have viewed it. And the best criticism that came out of it was from Dan Abrams, uh, who said that I can't have it both ways. I can't say that my statement was hyperbole, but also uh, out of context. Um, yes, I can. The statement I made was a sentence of hyperbole, and the reason that I did it was the context that was left out. It's pretty easy to do both of those at the same time. Now, consider the fact that that, that was the best objection. There were other objections, but the other objections were based on things I didn't even say or didn't even feel or was mind-reading right. The best objection was that you can't have it both ways when obviously you can. Very easily, obviously, you can have it both ways. It's just two things. It's not two opposite things. It's just two things. (laughs) I can have an apple and an avocado at the same time. Do you know what I can't have? I can't have an apple and not an apple at the same time. That would be, you know, if uh, Dan Abrams made that point and said, he says he can have an apple and not an apple at the same time, and he just can't do that. No, Dan, I can have an avocado and an apple. Same time. No conflict. So you tell me your opinion. I've asked this on the Locals platform. I'm going to talk to them privately in a minute. But uh, on YouTube, has the narrative about my little drama shifted in my direction? Once you realize that all the the adjutants, you know, the people who just like to make trouble, the click horrors and the, the trolls, once they get bored with it, does it look like things started moving my way or no? So I'll, I'll ask both of you. So, so people are seeing different things. So what you should see is that some people see it and some people don't, which is what it looks like. So best case scenario, because it's not possible to persuade everybody. Not everybody sees everything. But for the people who have been exposed to the context... Everything looks pretty good. 
So I'm going to leave the, the reason. Here's a little media tip if I didn't give you this one. The reason I'm leaving uh, that one interview up there and I'm turning down others is that as soon as you have more than one, it turns into a court case. Do you know what I mean? So the, the Cuomo interview hit all the points I needed to hit, so I was just leaving it there as one consistent thing. Because the moment I talk to somebody else, somebody is going to uh, illegitimately say, you said two different things, even if I don't. More likely, they're going to miss the context, and because they missed the context on one, they're going to say, well, you're lying because you said this and this one, but you said this and this one. And it won't be true. Both of them will be completely consistent, but the news only has to tell you they're inconsistent and you go down. So I just leave it, you know, leave it with one story as long as possible. And the next thing, the next part of the play is I want to see if there's any, uh, let's say, semi-legitimate news organization who decides to tell the whole story, like as a story. So in other words, would, uh, I don't know, New York Times or somebody, say, actually, there's a way more interesting story here that connects to a larger trend, which is the whole thing I was trying to do, is connected to a larger trend. Will anybody tell the whole story of why I did it, how I felt about it from my perspective, not guessing, you know, no mind reading, and then describe my strategy for handling it, my intention for doing it, and also how I reframed, once I had your attention, I reframed from all the backwards-looking um, strategies for success to forward-looking ones, and then also reframed from you know, looking at the big picture of systemic racism, which you have to work on, rather focusing on individual success. So even if you don't fix systemic racism, you can just slice through it like a hot poker through butter. And there's a reason I always repeat that one, because it's visual and it's repetition. So you'll know if I won. Here's how you'll know if I won. If you hear anybody in the media refer to strategy as looking backwards strategy, a rear-view mirror strategy, or planning for the past. And then they compare it to looking forward and how can we work together, how can you learn the tools of success, etc. If you see anybody in, in the public eye who starts using that frame, that would be probably for me. Because it's sticky. And it's the high ground of maneuver. All right, that's all for now, YouTube. I will talk to you tomorrow. Bye for now.